pray once again. God, we thank you for your book. We thank you that you have not left us here in silence. You have not been silent, God. You have spoken. And you've spoken to us through your word. The very book that we have before us, the inspired, inerrant, true, sufficient word. We know, God, that because you are a God who does not lie, it's always true that we can trust your word completely. So, Spirit, Spirit, we pray, come. Make us to believe these truths. Lead us to obey these truths. Lead us to worship you, God. As I preach, may it be worship. As this congregation listens, may it be worship. And may we be, because of this word, more loyal subjects than we were before we walked in. I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. This morning, I want to pinpoint an error we make as humans. Now, I know that there are Many to choose from. But this error is specifically related to our scripture text for the morning. Here it is. The error is our tendency to treat things as we want them to be instead of treating them as they truly are. Our tendency as humans is to treat things as we want them to be instead of treating them as they truly are. So a teenager who really wanted his first car to be a a brand new Camaro, he drives his 20-year-old four-cylinder hatchback way too hard. A couple that really loves the finer things of life spends money they don't have to experience luxury. A dad who really wants his son to play basketball because that was his sport in high school begins to try and manipulate his son who really prefers track. A young lady who really wants her fiancé to be more in touch with his emotions constantly sits him down for long talks about his feelings. We all do it. Just think. In what ways do you treat things as you want them to be, and not as they truly are. We let our desires blind us to reality. We let our wants become so strong that we begin to try and squeeze people and things to fit our desires. We allow our desires to rule us in this way, but if we're honest, doesn't it usually end badly for us when we try to do this? The four-cylinder hatchback breaks down. The couple goes into serious debt. The father exasperates his son. The fiancé and her husband-to-be begin to bicker and argue. Many times, when what we want 
is confronted with what is, there's trouble. When, we, when what we want is confronted with reality, there's often trouble. Now, if in these situations that I've just mentioned, there's trouble when we try to uh, approach things the way we want them to be instead of according to reality, if in those situations that's true, then think about the times when you approach Jesus according to what you want him to be and not truly who he is. Does it correspond? I think so. How do you respond in those times when you discover that King Jesus is not the king you want him to be? Will you become angry when those occasions come into your life? Will you try and manipulate him? Will you distance yourself from him when you discover that he's not always the king you want him to be? But did you hear what I said, church? I, 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 called, him, I called him King Jesus. King Jesus. The one who said in, in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. King Jesus is the ruler that he is. And we will not change him. We can only bow before him. Humbly, joyfully obey him and honor him. There is no changing him. But this news, as we'll see in our text this morning, is wonderfully good news. That we can't change him, but we can submit to him as he is. So turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, for our morning's text. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And follow along as I read. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says thing to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Today is what the church traditionally has called Palm Sunday. The Sunday before Good Friday and before Resurrection Sunday which gets its name from the fact that the people giving honor to Jesus as king waved palm branches as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. You don't see that here in this text, but um, 
it is in the John account. They're waving these palm branches. This was a Jewish symbol, a Jewish symbol which they used to hail Jesus as the promised king who would come from the line of David as Messiah. On this text this morning, I want I us to look at a number of things. Three things in particular. Number one, Jesus' control over this event, what has been called the, the triumphal entry, right? So I want us to see Jesus' control over the triumphal entry. I also want us to see the king that Jesus is here in contrast with the king that people want Jesus to be. So let's start with our first point, shall we? Jesus' control over the triumphal entry. Where are we in the progression of the book of Matthew? Well, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the last time before he is crucified. One commentator calls this the beginning of the end. It is the week of the Jewish feast of Passover, when the Jews would come from miles and miles away to celebrate and remember what God had done for the Jewish people when he had delivered them from slavery under Pharaoh, and saved the lives of their firstborn sons through the blood of the lamb smeared across the doorposts. It was the feast that they came to celebrate every year. And because of this feast, Jerusalem was brimming with Jews. During, during this week of Passover, uh, there uh, were so many Jews that the population of the city during that week would grow to five or six times its normal size. So we see... And this is the time that Jesus chooses to make obvious who he is. The week of Passover, coming to Jerusalem, all these Jews there for Passover. It's at this time that we see Jesus being very intentional, very intentional uh, about the timing with which he is entering Jerusalem. He's, he's in control of things, as we'll see, but First, let's look at his intentionality in regard to the timing of his entrance into Jerusalem. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem declaring his kingship during the week of Passover. Why? Why do we say that? Well, we know from other texts in the Gospels, uh, one like John one twenty nine, where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down the road and he, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. We, we know that in the Passover, the first Passover, the people of Israel were commanded to take a pure lamb, kill the pure lamb, and smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and then death would pass over that house. Death would not enter that house, pass over, and so they were spared the firstborn children were spared. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then more specifically, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul actually calls Jesus our Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb. He is who the Passover was all about. Jesus came to bleed and die so that God's judgment, too, would pass over all those who receive Christ by faith, who trust in him to save them, trust in them to escape the judgment they deserve for their sins. So Christ is our Passover lamb. The timing of this was purposeful. Jesus wanted his kingship to be seen in view of the cross, 
on which he would die in just a few days. It's just a matter of days. He's going to the cross to die. He's entering into Jerusalem, declaring his kingship, and he wants his kingship to be seen in view of the cross. We also see his intentionality, his control over the triumphal entry, and the instructions he gives to the disciples in our text in verses 1 through 3. Before Jesus enters Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples come to a village, Bethphage, which is just east of Jerusalem at the base of the Mount of Olives. Jesus tells his disciples exactly where to find a donkey and her colt, right? The very young colt, and tells them exactly what to say if anyone calls them out. If it comes to you, questions you, says something to you when you're, you're taking these, these donkeys, you say to them, the Lord needs them. And then he tells them exactly what will happen when those words are spoken, right? In the text we see, he says, and he will send them at once. By the way, the, the Matthew account doesn't mention it, but that's precisely what happens. Okay, just flip over to Mark, the Mark account of this triumphal entry, Mark 11, 4 through 6. By the way, this is one of the few accounts that is mentioned, that is uh, um, written in all four of the Gospels. Okay? Mark 11, 4 through 6, look at this. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They let them go. It's exactly what happened. So, so we see Jesus. He tells them exactly where to find the donkeys, um, exactly what to say. The Lord needs them. And then the response that is going to take place whenever they do say those words. Now, at the very least, at the very least, Jesus, this is Jesus choosing to use his omniscience, his, his all-knowingness, so that he knows all these details, okay? Or, as David Platt suggests, this is Jesus letting his deity shine through by divinely ordaining that these things be so, divinely ordaining these events using his divine nature, right? That is, ordering these events using his divine nature. Whichever option you choose, we, I think we can agree that one of the, uh, at this time, it, it, we see Christ using his divine nature so that what takes place is exactly the way he wants things to take place. Either he knows all that's going to take place or he is ordering the events regardless. We see him using his divine nature so that his kingship will be declared. And also, I, I think, in addition, in addition to that, to give support to that, we see him saying, tell them the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. He doesn't say the Son of Man needs them, but the Lord, which is the Greek word kurios. It's a title of power and authority. And uh, after the resurrection, that word kurios is used of God and Jesus almost every single time it's used after that in the New Testament. So it supports, I think, the idea that we, we see Jesus being very intentional, controlling the situation so that what is happening is him declaring his kingship at the proper time the way he wants it to be declared. 
Now we have to ask the question, why a donkey? Why a donkey? Why, why not a camel? Why not a stallion? That, that would be better, right? Jesus is controlling this aspect of the triumphal entry as well. Verse 4 of our text tells us, look, you want to flip back over there real quick? It tells us this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Right? This is taken from um, two texts in the Old Testament. Isaiah 62, 11, and Zechariah 9, 9, which talks about the king coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So, a donkey? Why specifically a donkey? Why not a camel? Why not a stallion? Because Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. It has to be fulfilled exactly this way. He couldn't come riding to Jerusalem on anything else except a colt, a donkey. Jesus did this to fulfill a prophecy made 500 years before his birth. This prophecy is a messianic prophecy. It's foretelling how the promised king would come to his people. A donkey, a a very young donkey, no less. And consider this as well. Out of the four times that we have this account written in the Gospels, Matthew is the only one that mentions two donkeys. Christ sends the disciples to go get two donkeys. We we find out in the account that um, he says, you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. So um, the donkey, we we are um, assuming, most commentators believe that this colt uh, is the child, the, the, uh, the offspring of the other donkey, which is the mother. So you've got a mother and a colt there. And so a lot of commentators say, well, probably the reason why uh, you had two is so that the mother could co- help the colt cooperate, right? Uh, calm him down, especially when we consider that the other um, accounts tell us that this is a donkey that has not been ridden upon, right? So donkey is there, the mother's there to calm that colt down. But think about this. R.C. Sproul suggests another reason for why Jesus tells the disciples to get both the mother donkey and her colt, okay? He says... Jesus chooses to make the fulfillment of prophecy unmistakable. Think about that for a minute. Jesus chooses to make the fulfillment of prophecy unmistakable. Meaning that if the prophecy says that Jesus will be riding on a very young donkey, then the addition of that donkey's mother walking right next to him would leave no doubt that Jesus is fulfilling this particular messianic prophecy, right? You've got Two donkeys, one's obviously the very young colt. This is its mother. There is no doubt that he is fulfilling this prophecy because he is riding on the colt, which Zechariah 9.9 specifies. Something to think about. May, that may be the reason. It may lend more support to the fact that Jesus is controlling this because he's moving toward a desired end that he has, which is him declaring. This is, this is the point I'm trying to make here. Um, why give this kind of attention to the fact that Jesus is being extremely intentional and controlling the circumstances of the triumphal entry? Why? Why give attention to this today, this morning? Because Jesus is not just having these things happen to him. This is not passive, in other words. I used to kind of think that. 
that um, he, he gets there to Jerusalem. You know, when you think about the triumphal entry, he gets there. Uh, people are saying, giving him donkeys. They're putting their cloaks on, on the back uh, of these donkeys. They're, they're celebrating him, paying homage to him in the streets. And, and he, he was just coming to Jerusalem. But you study these texts, and it's very obvious. He is being intentional. He is ordering these things so that he makes it clear he is the promised king, the promised Messiah, the one that would come in the line of David, the king of Israel. As 2 Samuel 7.16 tells us, the one whose throne will be established forever, the great king of Israel. It wasn't just that Jesus was tired of walking when he got to Jerusalem, right? They're, they're doing their ministry and they happen upon Jerusalem and he, or, or Bethphage in this case, and he's, uh, he's tired, so he tells the disciples, go fetch me a couple of donkeys. Isn't, isn't just them wandering aimlessly and this is kind of where they wound up? No. He's making these things take place the way he wants them. Coming to Jerusalem, specifically during the week of Passover, we know that because of these details, but also because if you, if you flip back a few chapters, you, you look at Matthew 16, 21, this is what Jesus says. Or this is what is said of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right? He's, he began to show them, I must go to Jerusalem. See the intentionality of that. And then we read also in Luke 9, 51 and 53, Jesus, um, it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. He's focused on Jerusalem, and he's focused on Jerusalem because his gaze was upon the cross. His gaze was upon the death that he would die for sinners. death he would die for the forgiveness of our sins. So he's not sneaking in, into Jerusalem. He's not just strolling into Jerusalem. He's not just moseying on into Jerusalem. This is purposeful. He rides in on a donkey just as was foretold that the Messiah King would. The triumphal entry isn't just happening to Jesus. This is not a surprise party. Oh, wow, they've got palm branches and everything. It was... <laughs> And very intentional. He's ordering this. He's saying, I am Messiah King. Don't think that Jesus did not want to be seen as King here. It's planned out. And the people knew what his actions meant, by the way. That, that's why that they're, uh, they're paying homage to him. That's, that's why they are waving the palm branches. That's why they are uh, laying down the branches and the cloaks on the ground. Because they understand what this means. Which is why they, they say, um, when they're using the verbiage that they use, when they're using these designations that they use, they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Those are designations that can only be used of the Messiah. Those can't be used of anybody else but the Messiah King, the promised one. And so they, they know what this is about. They know that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so they're honoring him. But Jesus' kingship is not what the people expected. They see him as king, 
Right? They, they, they recognize him as king. And I was listening to an Al Mohler sermon on this text this week, and, and he says, listen, the people, they were, they were ascribing honor and, and glory to him. They were, they were honoring him as the Messiah king. They got that right. That was completely appropriate. Their, their praise of him was completely appropriate. But they also got it wrong. It was right but wrong because they were looking for him to be a different king than he came to be. He wasn't the king the people expected and not what they wanted. As the reader of Matthew sees, uh, as he keeps reading, Jesus declaring his kingship is him declaring it in the shadow of the cross. Jesus has come to seek, to save, to suffer, to die, to give himself as a ransom for many, to pay for the sins of those who trust in him. He did not come to establish a physical kingdom on earth the first time. He did not come as a political military king to overthrow the enemies of Rome and, and those who would oppress Israel. He came to seek, save, suffer, die, and give himself in our place for our sin to take the punishment we deserved. So let's look a little more more closely at the king that Jesus is and the king that the people wanted him to be. Um, the king that Jesus is displaying himself to be here is a humble king. Just as Zechariah 9.9 says, right? Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Right? He is the humble king. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey, a beast of burden, which is a term that's used of, of donkeys to describe the fact that they were, they were raised up to carry heavy burdens. They were raised up to, to do heavy work, right? Um, Al Mohler says that donkeys were the pickup trucks of first century Israel. And Jesus came riding in on a donkey. This ain't no Rolls Royce. A donkey's not considered a beautiful animal, right? It's not, it's not con considered splendorous or regal. We would expect that the king of kings would come in, in a glorious chariot or a, a white stallion with a, with a finely crafted saddle right, with all kinds of kingly garb on it. That's what you would expect, but no, he comes riding in on a beast of burden. And, and this, this donkey, they don't even have a saddle for this donkey. There's no saddle. So what do, what do the disciples do? They, they take their own cloaks and they put their cloaks on these two donkeys. Because he doesn't even have a saddle. See the humbleness of this scene. And you, you, don't, you don't see with this king, King Jesus, you don't, you don't see a, a stately entourage of important people coming into Jerusalem with him, Right? I mean, certainly we can't describe the disciples that way, a stately entourage of important people. Um, there's no bodyguards, no high-ranking dignitaries or appointed, appointed members of the king's court that are with him. This display, church, does not impress. It does not impress. It does not command awe. If you're looking for kingliness, it, it, it's kind of like if, you, if you're looking for what you would expect a king to look like or to be, it's like you're, you're walking into a, a junior high band concert when you thought you were going to the symphony. But you know, it's completely consistent with what we read of Christ in the Gospels. 
completely consistent with what we read of Christ in the Gospels. Son of a carpenter. A manger was his crib. He doesn't have a place of his own to lay his head. His best friends are this ragtag group of fishermen with a, with a tax collector and a zealot thrown in there, right? His, his cousin is a bit eccentric, right? He eats locusts. And then you've got the fact that he hangs out with what people would consider some of the worst sinners in the world. He associates with them. Isn't this, isn't this right on track with the kind of life and ministry that was characterized by Jesus? The donkey, the display coming in, no entourage of important people, no trumpets. Jesus riding on a donkey without a saddle coming into Jerusalem. This is right on track with the kind of life and ministry he had up to this point. And isn't it right on track with the kind of death he will die in just a matter of days? Let me read a familiar passage to you. Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem fits with this. It fits with the one who took the form of a servant. It fits with the one who humbled himself. It fits with the death of the cross. And as you see upon reading the rest of Matthew, however, the Jews would soon discover that Jesus is not the king they want. He's not the king they want. These people's minds were, were filled with messianic texts like Psalm 110. Right? Turn with me there. Let's, let's see what that says. Psalm 110. We'll look at verses 2 through 7. These are the kind of messianic texts the people knew and were likely expecting from the Messiah King who came the first time. They're not even uh, doubtful. They're even thinking that Jesus is, is coming once, but that he'll return. They're just thinking he's coming. So likely their minds are filled with these kinds of texts. Let me look at Psalm 110, 2 through 7. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not, not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's likely that Old Testament descriptions like this one were what they were expecting from the promised king of Israel, which is why they hailed him as king, which is why they paid him homage with such exuberance. It would also explain why they turned on him so quickly when they found that he was not bringing in this kind of kingdom. 
So they quickly exchanged their hosannas for crucify him. You know, this, this kind of mentality of, of what the Jews were expecting um, is present in the apostles as well. Even after the resurrection. Look, look at another text with me, Acts 1.6. Flip over there. What were the people likely expecting the Messiah to be or come to do? I think we, we get a clue here in Acts 1.6. It says, after the resurrection, Christ has been on He's been resurrected about 40 days. So we see this in verse 6 of Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What's Jesus' response in verses 7 and 8? Look at this. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus was saying, it's time for proclamation, right? It is time for you to proclaim the good news, the gospel that I have come to save. I'm going away and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to empower you for this tax, task, he says. And they are likely thinking, okay, this, this must be it now. The Messiah, he came, he entered into Jerusalem. We kind of got the timing wrong. We thought he was going to set up his, his kingdom and start reigning then in Jerusalem, but then, but then he died. But now he's, he's risen, he's, he's been resurrected. Certainly now. He's going to bring back Israel to its former glory. And certainly now he's going to overthrow the oppression of Rome. But he says, it's time for you to be my witnesses, empowered by the Spirit who I'm sending to you. Time for proclamation. Church, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey that day, it was consistent with how his kingship would look until his second coming in the future. He was not riding on a war horse. He was not riding on a war horse to trample his enemies in judgment. He was riding on a donkey, humbly, peacefully. But he will come riding on a war horse one day, won't he? Let's look at that text too. Let's go to Revelation 19. There will be a day when he comes riding on the war horse. It was not the first time. It will be the second time in the future. Look at Revelation 19, starting in 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
As he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, he is king. But his kingship is going to be different until when he returns. And this is how his kingship will look. One where he comes in judgment. But that's in the future. That's the second coming. For now he has come to save. He's come to save sinners. I love John 12, 47. Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He didn't say, I will not come. I will not come to judge the world. But rather, I did not come to judge the world. He said that because he was talking about his first coming. The one we're reading about today. This is not what the people wanted or expected. They were likely thinking that Jesus would establish his throne in Jerusalem, physically, overthrow Roman oppression. Roman, the Roman Empire has had its boot on the necks of the Jews, and they wanted that to stop. But Jesus' reign was not going to be a military one. It was not going to be a political one. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. One where he would come to reign and the hearts of the people who believed in him. He would come and reign in the hearts of the people that trust him to save them from their sins through his life and death and resurrection. It was a spiritual kingdom. The one we are bowing to today. We believe Jesus is our king. We're bowing to his authority. It's a spiritual kingdom right now. One day it will be physical. Right now it's spiritual in which we are by faith living out lives of joyful submission to him. The one who came to rescue us from the punishment we deserve for our sins. We're as loyal subjects, giving our our lives of devotion to him because he has rescued us. They were thinking of a physical kingdom where the Messiah would squash Israel's enemies. But as John Piper says, his kingdom is for now meek, lowly, welcoming, seeking, forgiving, patient. That's the kingdom now. That's good news. That's good news. Let me ask you this, church. What is your response when you find that Jesus is not the king that you want him to be? For them... Jesus was not the king they wanted him to be. But we, even even as Christians, there are times when we go to him and we're seeking him to be something that he's not. What is your response in those times? Is it fierce anger as with the Jewish crowds? Do you abandon him for some other so-called kings? Do you try your hand at manipulating him? Whatever your response, Jesus will be the king that he is, and no one can change him. No one can manipulate him. And and notice something about the Jews who became angry, their, their fury, whenever they discovered that he was not the king they wanted him to be. Did that change anything about his kingship? Did he say, well, actually, I see your point. I see your point. You you know, let let me go do this over again. I'll come back into Jerusalem, okay? I'll go get a white horse this time. He didn't do that. It didn't change anything about his kingship. Their fury did not manipulate him. In fact, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because their fury is what God used to bring him to the cross. 
where he would die so that we would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom. God used their fury and their response for his purposes and his ends for our salvation. So when Jesus died, trust in him would no longer be part of that kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of his beloved son. You cannot change him. You cannot mold him into the king that you want him to be. All there is to do is to bow. Bow in humble obedience, humble submission to the great king. But if you don't, do know that his patience will not last forever. If, if you're someone who has not bowed the knee to King Jesus today, this morning, you have not come to him by faith, trusting in his, his life and death and resurrection for your only hope to forgive you of your sins, if you have not done that, his patience will not last forever because Revelation 19 is coming. But as we said, his kingship is one of welcoming, seeking, suffering for the forgiveness of those who trust in him. So come, bow, and receive all the benefits of being loyal subjects of King Jesus. Church, what kind of king do you want Jesus to be? The kind of king who makes your life prosperous? Is that the king you want him to be? The kind of king who takes away all your trials? The kind of king who makes you feel better about your sinful choices? kind of king who enables you to serve so-called other gods? Maybe a king that enables you to serve yourself? Is that what you want him to be? Do you want him to be the kind of king who saves you from your sins but doesn't care whether or not you obey him? That is not the king that Jesus is. And when we seek those kings, we're not seeking Jesus. We're seeking something that we've, we've made up according to our own desires. We're letting our desires rule us so that we're seeking Jesus as we want him to be instead of who he truly is. And we cannot change him. But if we seek him as he is, then he will most definitely change us. And that is good. That is good news today for the church, for sinners. He'll make us like him. We can't change him, but he'll change us. As we seek him for the king that he is continuously, he will continuously make us into his image. We'll become more like him. We'll become more holy, more loving, more joyful, more faithful. I want to be changed. Do you want to be changed, church? I need to be changed. And he promises he will. Not only do we new creatures in Christ when we come to him by faith, he makes us new creatures, but then sanctification uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit means that we will progressively grow and change. And one day we will be without sin. And he glorifies us. So Jesus didn't come overthrow Rome and return Israel to its former glory the first time. 
began to die for sin, to pay for sin, to be crushed by his father for us, to be punished for our sins so we would be declared righteous, so that we would receive his forgiveness and adopted as sons and daughters into his family, God's family. He came to deal with sin, to save us from its power and its penalty, but to make us new and to change us and to call us to lives of faithful devotion to him as his loyal subjects. And he's left us with a mission to make disciples, to be his witnesses, to tell others there's a king of kings. And one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But that day hasn't come yet. There's still time to do that voluntarily. There's still time to do that in this life when you can receive all the benefits of being his loyal subjects, right? His salvation. One day, there, there will be those in the end who will bow and it will be too late to receive all of the benefits, all of the grace, all of the love of Jesus, all the all that was purchased for us on the cross. One day it'll be too late. Every knee will bow because every knee must bow to honor him, but right now there's still time for sinners to bow the knee and to receive the benefits, receive him and all that comes with trusting him as Savior. So we are witnesses. We are on a mission to make disciples, to tell them about this wonderful king. Because on the day of judgment, we, we won't need prosperity. We won't need self-esteem. We won't need worldly pleasure or more stuff. Maybe those are the things we seek Jesus for sometimes, right? On, on the day of judgment, we're going to need the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. We're going to need his righteousness. That's what we need on the day of judgment. See, church, Jesus may not always be the king we want him to be, but he is always the king that we need him to be. We need him to deal with sin. We need his righteousness. He's always the king we need. Praise the Lord. He's always the king we need. We need his atoning death, and we'll receive that if we come to him and bow to him by faith. Let me just say again, if you, if you haven't bowed the knee to King Jesus by faith to receive his salvation because he died and rose again for sinners, let me, let me tell you, you won't find his palace on a map anywhere in this, in this earth. It won't be on a map. His throne, you can't behold with physical eyes right now. But like so many other people in this world, you can trust that he is king. And he will come to rule your heart if you believe in him by faith. There are people all over this world that believe that he is their king even though they can't see him with physical eyes. Even though they can't go to his palace and get there by plane or car. They believe he is king and he is the king of kings. The savior king. And he will return. When he returns, those who have bowed the knee, those who have trusted in him, get to go be with him and rule with him 
and enjoy his kingship for eternity where there is no sin and where his enemies are not there, where they've been dealt with and judged, but enjoy him perfectly in his perfect kingdom. So let's bow today. Let's bow the knee today in every decision that we make. Let us bow the knee to King Jesus. Let us pray and plead with his power and his grace so that we will bow, so that we will be humbled, so that we'll recognize him as the one who rules over our lives, not us, not anyone else but him. And let us enjoy all of the grace that comes to those who continue. Yes, we sin, but continue to come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. I bow again. I need you. You are my king. Forgive me, give me the grace to bow and to humbly serve you because of your worth and all that you've done. Let's pray. Thank you, King Jesus. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have died for us. Thank you that there is still a kingdom where you, the kingdom kingdom that exists right now, the one in which you are king is one where you're seeking sinners to save them, where you are inviting them, welcoming them, being patient with them. Bring more to repentance because you're worthy, O king. Bring more to repentance and faith so more will honor you and glorify you as you deserve to be honored and know all of the wonderful grace that comes to those who have been saved by your grace through faith and your life and death and resurrection. We pray this in his name, Christ the King.